Thank you very much, Elspeth. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you very much, Elspeth, for organising today. I've, I've found it really um, productive and enjoyable, so thank you. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is um, it's a very new project. Um, it's part of some work I'm doing with uh, Jamie Johnson and Victoria Basham on thinking about scandology and the introduction of scandal um, to, uh, to global politics and why it might be worth thinking about scandal as an object of analysis in a way that uh, sociologists and criminologists have for a, for a long time. Um, and my aim um, today is to try and draw connections between scandal, secrecy and security practices. Um, and the title of the paper is, has changed to Grenfell's new cladding. Um, and what you can see on the screen is, if you like, a double scandal, because we had the scandal of Grenfell, but also a scandal that shortly followed was the phenomenon of people going to Grenfell and taking selfies of themselves with the scandal. I'm going to start off by talking about um, how I'm thinking about these three objects, scandal, secrecy and security practices. <laughs> Scandals, um, to borrow from Crosby and Sass, uh, entail the wide publicisation of a normative violation, one with institutional implications. The focal norm can be ethical, religious, political, legal or otherwise, but the key issue is, the facticity, is, is not the facticity of the violation, but rather its perception. These occur when there's a widespread consensus that a wrong has occurred, often a wrong being unlawful or otherwise a transgression of societal mor uh, morals or norms. The scandal also seems to have an interesting temporal and uh, spatial dimension. It emerges suddenly, even if the wrong was previously a public secret. It tends to concern specific wrongs perpetrated by agents during the course of an event. And a scandal seems to provoke unease because it suggests a community, authority or institutional complicity in the wrong. And for this paper, I'm interested in scandals of illiberal violence in liberal societies. So what I mean by that is allegations that involve agents of an ostensibly liberal state or societal organisation with some duty of care um, that through some act of commission or omission have responsibility or alleged responsibility for violence that infringes upon individual rights. Um, I think at the moment global politics is occupied by three prominent scandal trends. One of those concerns violations of excesses of war, so it would apply to things like torture and, and Abu Ghraib, as, as Lisa has been talking about. Um, violations concerning sexual violence, if we think about the, um, the scandal concerning aid charities like Oxfam, but also Me Too and Kavanaugh. And the focus of, of this paper Violations concerning, and I still haven't quite nailed down this category, I think we'd call it broadly social murder. So the routine, widespread, foreseeable, premature death and ecological devastation. Now examples of these harms often appear in the global south connected to neoliberal restructuring, resulting in the expulsion of rural communities from common land, the denial of access to uh, insurance as the result of privatisation, deteriorating labour conditions. Um, these are, however, often rarely scandals. Um, however, um, today I'm going to focus on an event which undoubtedly was a scandal, perhaps because it occurred within an ostensibly liberal global north society, and that's Grenfell. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Grenfell, but just for a brief, a brief background, in July 2017, 71 people were killed and 70 injured by the fire at Grenfell Tower, a public housing block in North, London, Kens uh, in, uh, North Kensington in London. And like other housing across the country, the tower had been covered in cheap, flammable cladding. Residents complained for years about the absence of fire extinguishers, blocked fire escapes, and hazardous materials. 
cuts to legal aid meant they were unable to afford advice from lawyers. And indeed, even instead, the building's tenant management organization threatened campaigners with legal action for questioning fire safety. Grenfell came to symbolize decades of disinvestment and for austerity, and commentators voiced their disbelief that such things were happening in Britain in 2017. Scandalous events politicize issues and are often met with promises for truth and justice. In the wake of Grenfell, the Prime Minister announced a full public inquiry into the events, promising, and I quote, justice for all victims of the terrible tragedy, to establish the facts of what happened, to prevent a similar tragedy from happening again, and that we must get to the truth of what happened. No stone will be left unturned by this inquiry. And it's often been claimed that scandals and the official responses to them are an insufficient ethical and political response. This is because scandals function to locate responsibility within discrete spaces, temporal ruptures, and individual failures. And therefore, despite a deafening public outcry, a scandal can reaffirm the legitimacy of social practices that constitute violence, inequality, and fear. Simply bearing witness to scandal, exposing truth to power on these terms might be insufficient. This does, however, seem quite a totalizing and pessimistic view, and one which I'm thinking about how we might overcome. But how does this line drawing of scandal, the demarcating of the guilty from the innocent, involve an orchestration of revelation and of secrecy? And that's the question I want to try and develop in this, in this paper. I'm going to talk about two different ways of thinking about secrecy. One, based on what I consider to be a classically liberal understanding of both revelation and what Lisa describes as the, uh, as the secrecy exposure accountability continuum. Um, I'm going to call this a Benthamite view because I think uh, uh, Jeremy Bentham's thoughts kind of typifies, exemplifies this, this, this line. And the other drawing on uh, Michael Tosic's idea of the, the public secrets. I think these are questions that involve security for two reasons. One being because the outrageous violence that provokes scandal is often caused by insecurity. In Victoria Basham's recent words, the desire of liberal subjects to have um, lives free of insecurity may call into question the ability of others to have not only an everyday but any life at all. Um, and I also think that, that scandal and their revelation is a matter of security because it relates to the phenomena of security publics, as, as Clive Barnett, but also as, as, as William has written about before, uh, in Clive Barnett's words, how practices of security work through mediums of public action rather than through their suspension. So, um, I give you the uh, liberal scandal and the three steps of revelation. Um, so, number one, scandals, liberal scandals, are driven by the revelation of secrets as secretum. This is the idea that the causes of scandalous acts are contained within guilty secrets that must be dragged into the light. As Eva Horn has written about, the etymological root of secrets is secretum that which is separated or set apart. Secrecy therefore refers to a relationship of difference between those who know something and those who don't know but suspect there is something to know without knowing what that is. When this suspicion is combined with a belief in the corrective power of transparency and a belief that behind every secret is a potential abuse of power, the result is a societal obsession with revelation. This leads to the vilification of secrecy in Judith Sklar's liberalism of fear. For those of us beyond the veil of secrecy, all we know is that we don't know. And this leads to uh, the position that transparency enhances the security of liberal democratic life, exemplified in, in Bentham's work, uh, the so-called grandfather of trans transparency, as Claire Birchall calls him. 
And as criminologist and sociologist Chris Greer has suggested, scandal politics is underpinned by and in turn legitimates watchdog, watchdog politics, investigative journalism, on the promise of the next scoop and the exposure of dark spaces to the light. The Grenfell Inquiry is the fulfilment of this focus in which each witness is examined under oath by barrister, eager to probe the subject on their actions, their knowledge and their intent, broadcast live around the world. But as many warn, as Jodie Dean, Claire Birchall, Eva Horn all warn, liberal politics becomes then reduced to a never-ending quest for revelation. And this quest is insatiable because no matter how much disclosure there is, there remains a constant suspicion that something is being withheld. Step two, scandalous secrets concern revelations of discrete objects, individual knowledge and intent. It seems to me that at the heart of the idea of the transparent gaze is the sovereign, responsible individual. An idea grounded in notions of human agency emerging in, the, in Europe in the philosophy of the Enlightenment. The idea of the self-determining moral agent, equipped with distinctive cognitive and volitional capacities of understanding and self-control, and of a universal personhood underpinned by these features that are crucial to the gradual development of modern societies. This idea assumes that all individuals act according to the same rational calculation about the maximization of their interests as homo economicus. And this means two things. Either if an individual commits a scandalous act, it means they consider the benefits of their act to outweigh the likelihood of punishment or negative consequences, or they lack the capacity for such rationality through failing rationality or information. And this allows scandalous acts to be passed off as the bad, the mad, and the had. Those bad apples, those who, through a lack of rational capacity, commit wrongdoing, or those who unintentionally commit wrongs through a lack of information or training. Locating accountability for scandals is limited under this view, therefore, if it considers it is only reasonable to hold people account for things they knew or should have known would be wrong. And this individualization is, a, is of course a crude explanation of human behavior that ignores and depoliticizes the social and political contexts in which our motives are formed. In Ulrich Beck's works, at the same moment as he or she sinks into insignificance, he or she is elevated to the apparent throne of world shaper. In the aftermath of the Grenfell fire, we've seen many attempts to reveal these world shapers to the world, the bad or the had. First, it was the Ethiopian taxi driver who was blamed for the fire resulting from his faulty fridge. After the story was retracted by the Daily Mail, the man was offered witness protection following the slew of abuse that he received. Now the story remains one of wicked local councillors and building contractors who acted callously and with knowing disregard of residents when they installed the flammable cladding that made the tower fit into the increasingly gentrified district. However, where these bad figures can't be found, people claim there is no scandal, only a tragedy. In her expert report, expert to the inquiry Barbara Lane has told the inquiry that she can find no evidence that there was any understanding by any member of the design team or construction team, nor by the approving authority, that the cladding system was combustible or in breach of building regulations, leading to commentators like Andrew O'Hagan to reject attempts of those to describe Grenfell as murder, to capture the injustice 
and to criticise individualising logic of scapegoating. Step three, scandalous secrets are infotainment. In the days after the fire, a handwritten placard appeared on a set of hoardings next to the remains of the tower. It read, Grenfell, a tragedy, not a tourist attraction, hashtag selfies. Residents expressed their outrage to an influx of visitors who, as grief tourists, came to take selfies in front of the tower. From this placard, to the Ethiopian taxi driver, to the first day of the hearings, when the inquiry began with two residents speaking of their grief after their unborn baby died in the hours after the fire, Grenfell is embedded in a political economy of outrageous revelations, each destined to appear in the Daily Mail's sidebar of shame. And as Bentham reminds us in his argument for why publicity is beneficial, he tells us publicity is beneficial for the amusement that results from it. There is an entire media industry devoted to unearthing scandals and defending this activity on the grounds of investigative journalism. There's also something seductive and interesting and amusing about scandals. So I think that's the kind of the totalising way of thinking about scandals, as ones that draw lines and think about secrets and revelations that reduce the story and the accountability to one of malintent, or the mad, the bad, or the had. And I wonder if we can complicate that by thinking about Tossig's work on the public secrets. Tossig describes the public secret as something that is generally known but can't be spoken. Things are publicly secret when people avoid giving the impression they have knowledge of it, and far from passive ignorance, it involves an active not knowing or a knowing what not to know. This phenomena of not knowing can manifest in different ways. On the one hand, people may understand the importance of and actively participate in maintaining the public secret, the fear of the consequences of not upholding it. On the other hand, people may be taken over or caught up in the charade, sincerely believing in the fiction created by the public secrets. These quiet understandings, in Radcliffe's words, are part of a range of social activities in which certain matters are held in abeyance as part of the continued order of society. As Tossig writes, we act, and we have to act, as if mischief were not afoot in the kingdom of the real, and that all around the ground lay firm. That is, that, that is what the public secret, the facticity of the social fact, being a social being, is all about. So the public secret then perhaps can be understood as a kind of security practice in the way that perhaps Mick Dillon may describe. A technology that maintains a particular way of thinking about what counts as a security threat and how those threats ought to be governed in pursuit of a particular way of life. But Tossig also tells us that public secrets can be defaced. Defacement catches us unawares and can be only known unexpectedly. They promise an unspecified knowledge. In a Lacanian term, the possibility of new possibilities. We are in the midst of Grenfell's defacement. But, Tossig tells us, revelation or defacement can make the public secret even more powerful. If the public secret can be likened to Hans Christian Andersen's classic fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, in which all profess ignorance of a reality that is evident to everyone, we are witnessing Grenville's new cladding, although that risks a return to this transparency-secrecy dichotomy that we're troubling today. I suggest that perhaps Grenfell's, the Grenfell scandal is a kind of defacement that preserves the public secret of Grenfell's violence. What is Grenfell's public secret? Well, Grenfell has, I say, been dubbed by many a crime of austerity. 
Victoria Cooper and David White in their book The Violence of Austerity describe a three-part deception that supports the legitimacy of the austerity agenda. These include, number one, we all played a part in the crisis. Austerity is claimed as a rational response to soaring levels of personal and public debt, which in turn resulted from a combination of reckless governments and debt-fueled personal consumption. We maxed out our credit card, as the narrative goes. The finger is pointed at key individuals, the Fred Goodwins and Bob Diamonds of our world, and some practices like toxic mortgage lending are ruled out. Austerity is necessary, number two. Only austerity would lead to financial recovery. It is the only game in town. And three, we are all in this together. A trope that is increasingly difficult to square with the real lived experience of austerity, but nonetheless one that is sustained by the previous two claims. All this, Cooper and White argues, distracts from the fact that the global financial crisis was constituted by neoliberal capitalism and the search for liminal spaces, which led to the slashing of red tape and uncontrolled financial behaviour. The system of normal or normal machinery of corporate capitalism is not subject to any meaningful scrutiny. Moreover, austerity can be situated in part of a broader state's behaviour of, as David Harvey describes, corporatisation and privatisation of public assets. Brenda Bandar has recently suggested a step further that we might think of Grenfell as a consequence of organised abandonment. That is, the single-minded pursuit of the organisation's objective where it does not matter what the social cost is as long as the values of the organisation are pursued. Bandar claims that this organised abandonment takes the form of, in the case of Grenfell, over a period of decades, the government and the local council embracing a mode of governing that prioritises the efficient running of businesses, in turn, profit maximisation, but underlying this mode of governance, there had to be a pre-existing and profound disregard for the lives of those living in social housing. What is of key significance, Bandar tells us, is, an in is, is, the in is the intention to do harm is not necessary, a precondition for rendering them vulnerable to premature death. Now, there have been attempts to deface this as a public secret in the Grenfell Inquiry. Imran Khan, for instance, QC, who previously represented Stephen, uh, Stephen Lawrence's family, has tried to characterise the causes of the inquiry through the rubrics of institutional racism and class. The inquiry's focus, Khan claimed, at the opening of the inquiry in 2018 in June, on the construction and refurbishment of the tower which led to the fire will not be the full story. Race, religion and social class should be considered, Khan claimed, because the inquiry will not otherwise explain why it was these particular people were the ones that died and will not explain what led to their death. Already, however, the more publicly salient liberal frame of scandal and secrecy has made these claims hard to process. Through the fascination with intent, Khan's claims have been interpreted and rebuffed as claims that the local authority and emergency service workers acted with intentional prejudice to ethnic minorities and poor communities. Perhaps we can make sense of this through Tossig's remark that the secret is an invention that comes out of the public secret. That is, the construction of a public secret supports the idea that there is in fact something hidden, when in fact the secret of the public secret is that there is none. 
I think this links with Jody Dean's claim that the idea of the guilty secret, the object of the liberalism of fear, sutures together a policy that would otherwise be divided by inequality and injustice. The promise of the guilty secret prevents, prevents this discordance by promising to lay the blame for injustice at the bad, the mad and the had. In this way, Tossig tells us, the public secret has fated to maintain the verge where the secret is not destroyed through exposure, but subject to a revelation that does justice to it. The public secret can be defined as a reconfiguration of repression in which depth becomes surface so as to remain depth. And I'm still sort of trying to play with this, but I, I wonder if then we can think about this as the public secret of Grenfell's violence then being recaptured by liberal scandal, by the emergence of something that is then reinterpreted through this three-part process of liberal scandal. Um, so it's rather an abrupt ending there for me, I'm afraid. That's sort of where I've got to with thinking about this work. I mean, I've got a few sort of broad uh, uh, conclusions. So I think I've tried to talk about what does, what does the liberal secret do, closes off and draws lines of seeing. Um, we might think about it as a state of denial, as Stan Cohen talks about, a partial acknowledgement. Um, how do you show a public secret of disregard? And it relates to what we've just been talking about in terms of you know, Kavanaugh. How do you make that kind of public secret uh, legible, visible? And how does it facilitate a kind of moral disengagement? Are scandals in the work of uh, Andrew Williams a kind of passing fury? What other forms of acknowledgement and of scandal are there? Or is the event of the scandal and revelation actually um, deeply unhelpful? I think that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>